just a, um, it's just a preview. Some of the book websites that you do a little preview of a book before you buy it, so I thought that might be a good way to get some better quality stories, you know, um, because I noticed that surprise to anyone 
just two years after Anthony's birth. He was born, he was joined by a younger brother, christened Benedict. Edmund immediately adjusted his daily routine to take two sons on his hikes, and he spent a week holed up in the stables, working with his leather worker to devise a special pack that would hold Anthony on his back while he held the baby Benedict in his arms. They walked across fields and streams, and he told them of wondrous things, of perfect flowers and clear blue skies, of knights in shining armor and damsels in distress. While he used to laugh when they returned all windblown and sun-kissed, and Edward would say, See, here is our damsel in distress. Clearly we must save her. And Anthony would throw himself into his mother's arms, giggling as he swore he'd protect her from the fire-breathing dragon that just seemed two miles down the road in the village. Two miles down the road in the village, Flatter would breathe, keeping her voice carefully laden with horror. Heaven above, what would I do without three strong men to protect me? Benedict's a baby, Anthony would reply. But he'll grow up, she would always say, tossing his hair. Just as he did, and just as he still will. Edmund always treated his children with equal affection and devotion. But late at night, when Anthony cradled the Bridgerton pocket watch to his chest, given to him on his eighth birthday by his father, who had received it on his eighth birthday from his father, he liked to think that his relationship with his father was just a little bit special. Not because Edmund loved him best, by that point the Bridgerton siblings numbered four. Colin and Daphne had arrived fairly close together, and Anthony knew very well that all the children were well loved. No, Anthony liked to think that his relationship with his father was special, simply because he'd known him the longest. After all, no matter how long, Benedict had known their father. Anthony would always have two years on him, and six on Colin. And as for Daphne, Besides the fact that she was a girl, the horror, she'd known father up for eight years less than he, and he liked to remind himself, always would. Edmund Bridgerton was, quite simply, the very centre of Anthony's world. He was tall, his shoulders were broad, and he could ride a horse as his if he was born in the saddle. answers to arithmetic questions, even when the tutor didn't. He saw no reason why his child's son should not have a treehouse, and then he went and built it himself. And his laugh was the sort that warmed a body from the inside out. Edmund taught Anthony how to ride. He taught Anthony how to shoot. He taught him to swim. He took him off to eat in himself, rather than sending him in a carriage, with servants, where most of Anthony's future friends arrived. 
he saw Anthony glancing nervously about the school that would become his new home. He had a heart-to-heart talk with his eldest son, assuring him that everything would be alright. And it was, Anthony knew it would be. His father, his father after all, never lied. Anthony rubbed his mother. Hell, he'd probably bite off his own arm if it meant keeping her safe and well. But growing up, everything he did, every accomplishment, every goal, every single hope and dream, it was all for his father. And then one day, everything changed. It was funny, he reflected later, how once life could alter in an instant. How one minute everything could be a certain way, and the next, it simply not. It happened when Anthony was 18, and home from home for the summer, and preparing for his first year at Oxford. He was to belong to All Souls College, as his father had before him, and his life was as bright and dazzling as any 18-year-old had a right to enjoy. He had discovered women, and perhaps more splendidly, they had discovered him. His parents were still happily reproducing, having added Eloise, Francesca, and Gregory to the family. And Anthony did his best not to roll his eyes when he passed his mother in law pregnant with her eighth child. It was all a bit unseemly in Anthony's opinion, having children of their age, but he kept his opinion to himself. Who was he to doubt Edmund's wisdom? Maybe he too would want more children at the advanced age of 38. <laughs> when Anthony found out, it was late afternoon. He was returning from a long and bruising ride with Benedict, and had just pushed through the front door of Aubrey Hall, the ancestral home of the Bridgertons when he saw his ten-year-old sister sitting on the floor. Benedict was still in the stables, having lost some silly bet with Anthony, the terms of which required him to rub down both horses. Anthony stopped short when he saw Daphne. It was odd enough that his sister was sitting in the middle of the floor in the main hall. It was even more odd that she was crying. Daphne never cried. said hesitantly, too young to know what to do with a crying female and wondering if he'd ever learn. What? But before he could finish his question, Daphne lifted her head, and the shattering heartbreak in her large brown eyes cut through him like a knife. He stumbled back a step, knowing something was terribly wrong. He's dead, Daphne whispered. Papa is dead. For a moment, Anthony was sure he'd misheard. His father couldn't be dead. Other people died young, like Uncle Hugo. But Uncle Hugo had been small and frail. Lolly smaller and frailer than Edmund. You're wrong, he told Daphne. You must be wrong. She shook her head. Eloise told me. He was... It was... Anthony knew he shouldn't shake his sister while she shot, but he couldn't 
himself. He was what Daphne, a bee, she whispered. He was stung by a bee. For a moment, Anthony could do nothing but stare at her. Finally, his voice hoarsely and barely recognizable. He said, A man doesn't die from a bee sting, Daphne. She said nothing, just sat there on the floor, her throat working convulsively as she tried to control her tears. He's been stung before, Anthony said, his voice rising in volume. I was with him. We were both stung. We came across a nest. I was stung on my shoulder, unbidden. His hand rose to touch the spot where he'd been stung so many years before. In a whisper he added, he on his arm. Daphne just stared at him with an eerily blank expression. He was fine, Anthony insisted. He could hear the panic in his own voice. And he knew he was frightening his sister, but he was powerless to control it. A man can't die from a beast thing. Daphne shook her head, her dark eyes suddenly looking about a hundred years old. It was a bee, she said in a hollow voice. Eloise saw it. One minute he was just standing there, and the next he was... He was... Anthony felt something very strange building with him, as if his muscles were about to jump through his skin. The next he was what, Daphne? Gone. She looked bewildered by the word, as bewildered as he felt. Anthony left Daphne sitting in the hall and took the stairs three at a time up to his parents' bedchamber. Surely his father wasn't. A man couldn't die from a bee sting. It was impossible. Utterly mad. Edmund Bridgerton was young. Strong. He was tall. His shoulders were broad. His muscles were powerful. And by God, no insignificant honeybee could have felt him. But when Anthony reached the upstairs hall, he could tell by the utter and complete silence of the dusk or so offering servants that the situation was grim and their pitying faces. For the rest of his life he'd be haunted by those pitying faces. He thought he'd have to push his way into his parents' room, but the servants parted as if they were drops in the Red Sea. And when Anthony pushed open the door, he knew. His mother was sitting on the end of the bed, not weeping, not even making a sound. Just holding his father's hand as she rocked her slowly back and forth. His father was still, still as. And he didn't even want to think of the word. Mama, he choked out. He hadn't called her that for years. She'd been mother since he'd left for Eton. She turned slowly as if hearing his voice for a long, what happened, he whispered. She shook her head, her eyes hopelessly far away. I don't know, she said. Her lips remained parted by 
as if she meant to say something more, but then she'd forgotten to do it. Anthony took a step forward, his movements awkward and jerky. He's gone, Violet finally whispered. He's gone, and I... Oh God, I... She placed her hand on her belly, full and round with child. I told him, oh, Anthony, I told him. She looked as if she might have shouted from the inside out. Anthony choked back the tears that were burning his eyes and sticking his throat and moved to her side. It's alright, Mama, he said. But he knew it wasn't alright. I told him this had to be our last, she gasped, sobbing under his shoulder. I told him I couldn't carry another and we'd have to be careful. who he is and what he has done 
further accountings are to him redundant. He doesn't behave like an idiot for the simple reason that he isn't an idiot, any more so than must be expected among all members of the male gender. He has little patience for the foibles of society, and quite frankly, most of the time, this author cannot say she blames him. And if that doesn't describe Viscount Bridgerton, surely this season's most eligible bachelor to perfection, this author shall retire her quill immediately. The only question is, will 1814 be the season he finally succumbs to the exquisite bliss of matrimony? This author thinks not. Lady Whistleton, Society Papers, 28. Please don't tell me, Kate Sheffield said to the room at large, that she is writing about Viscount Bridgerton again. Her half-sister Edwina, younger by almost four years, looked up from behind a single-sheet newspaper. How could you tell? You're giggling like a mad woman. Edwina giggled, shaking the boot and damask sofa on which they both sat. See, Kate said, giving her a little poke in the arm. You always giggle when she writes about some reprehensible rogue. But Kate grinned. There was a little she liked about better than teasing her sister. In a good-natured manner, of course. Mary Sheffield, Edwina's mother and Kate's stepmother for nearly 18 years, looked up from her embroidery and pushed her spectacles farther off. Of her nose. What do you do laughing about? Kate's in a snit because Lady Whistledon is writing about that rakish viscount again, Edwina explained. I'm not in a snit, Kate said, even though no one was listening. Bridgerton, Mary asked absently. Edwina nodded. Yes, she always writes about him. I think she just likes writing about rakes, Edwina commented. Of course she likes writing about rakes, Kate retorted. If she wrote about boring people, no one would buy her newspaper. That's not true, Edwina replied. Just last week she wrote about us, and heaven knows we're not the most interesting people in London. Kate smiled at her sister's naivety. Kate and Mary might not be the most interesting people in London, but Edwina, with her buttery coloured hair and startlingly pale blue eyes, had already been named the incomparable of 1814. Kate, on the other hand, with her plain brown hair and eyes, was usually referred to as the incomparable's older sister. She supposed there were worse monikers. At least no one had yet begun to call her the incomparable spinster sister, which was a great deal closer to the truth than any of the Sheffields cared to admit. At 20, Nearly 21, if one was going to be scrupulously honest about it, Kate was a bit long in the tooth to be enjoying her first season in London, but there hadn't really been any other choice. The Sheffields hadn't been wealthy, even when Kate's father had been alive, and seemed to passed on five years earlier. They'd been forced to economise even further. They certainly weren't ready for the poorhouse, but they had to mind every penny and watch every pound. With their straightened finances, the Sheffields could manage the funds for only 
one trip to London, renting a house at the carriage and hiring the bare minimum of servants for the seats that cost money, more money than they could afford to spend twice. As it was, they'd have to save for five solid years to be able to afford this trip to London. And if the girls weren't successful on the marriage mark, well, no one was going to clap them into debtor's prison. But they would have to look forward to a quiet life of genteel poverty in some charmingly small cottage in Somerset. And so the two girls were forced to make their debuts in the same year. It had been decided that the most logical time would be when Edwin was just 17 and Kate almost 21. Mary would have liked to have waited until Edwin was 18 and a bit more mature, but that would have made Kate nearly 22 in heavens, but who would marry her then? Kate smiled wryly, but had she even wanted a season? She'd known from the outset that 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 she wasn't the sort who would capture the attention of the tongue. She wasn't pretty enough to overcome her lack of dowry, and she'd never learned to simper and mince and walk delicately and do all the things other girls seemed to know how to do in the cradle. Even Edwina, who didn't have a devious bone in her body, somehow knew how to stand and walk and sigh so that men came to close just for the honour of helping across the street. Kate, on the other hand, always stood with her shoulders straight and tall, couldn't sit still if her life depended on it, and walked as if she were in a race. And why not? She always wondered, if one was going somewhere, what could possibly be the point in not getting there quickly? As for her current season in London, she didn't even like the city very much. See you next time.